Hello and welcome to the third episode of No Filter by EEG. My name is Graham Schoen. I'm joined on this podcast by our residential editor, Emma Rosser. Emma, please greet the audience. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Superbly done. Brilliant. Thanks. And uh, also joining me today is EG editor Sam McClary. Sam, please uh, follow Emma's lead in providing words. <laughs> to the audience. Hello, audience. How are you all? Hopefully uh, they're all uh, a little bit more chipper uh, this week. Uh, minor relaxation of restrictions, etc. Hope everyone's enjoying what we what sunshine we have anyway, potentially enjoying the snow uh, if that's their predilection. Uh, on today's uh, podcast, we're going to dive into the slightly disparate worlds of permitted development rights uh, and outdoor dining, uh, threaded together as they are being uh, related closely to the universe of commercial real estate. Uh, Alfresco dining to come uh, a little bit later on. Firstly, um, size standards for permitted development came into force last week, having been announced last autumn. Ostensibly, it seems, to try and prevent the proliferation of uh, micro homes, which have caused uh, a fair slew of consternation uh, across the UK. Uh, and Emma, the timeline, to my mind, goes something like this. The PM last summer stood up and said, build, 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 to help the economy. Fast forward to November, uh, and you reported on actually a slump uh, in PD right uh, proposals uh, from kind of the summer through to November. So just, um, if you can, uh, bring us up to speed uh, on what we've seen from November right up to now uh, and the kind of wider context of these uh, size standards uh, reforms. Yeah, to be honest, Graham, I'm I'm really impressed that you managed to work out a timeline with this all because it's actually been really difficult. Um, and that's not just for me, for, for kind of some of the big trade groups as well. Following the constant changes has been a challenge. But yes, around the summer, we saw an expansion of the class, class O, which is the main one, which allows the office to ready, resi conversions. So straight off of the back of that one I wanted to see around kind of September October what what the uplift had been and then we hadn't seen any uplift at all um, in fact there was as you say there was a slump but I've been working with radius and the and the planning data to see well what's happened over the last six months as you've got that expanded class O but you've also got that deadline knowing that on April 6th you're going to have the um, the size standards come into place and just as a bit of background the size standards were introduced uh, at the same time that it was announced that permitted development would be significantly expanded so at the moment it really is kind of focused on offices but this um, this will be expanded to basically all commercial property and we can go into that um, when I've when I've dug into these lovely numbers so splendid <laughs> I know you like a spreadsheet um, love it uh, this one is is straight out the oven as well, Graham. I mean, as expected, we've seen record record number of applications, and and that's what probably I mean that's what I'd expected to see at the tail end of last year, and we hadn't, but it has really picked up. So, in the first three months of this year, there were 128 applications for 5,000 homes, and that might not sound like a lot in the grand scheme of of Resi, but but these, I mean, it's double the number of a year, a year ago. And if all those homes do get built, um, it is still a, a significant number. And we've really seen that kind of it's a consistent rise over over the last six months, really, um, with last month so in March, a new record of 55 applications for 2,421 homes. So as, as expected, we've seen that uplift. What I can't tell you, which is a little disappointed, is just going to take a little bit more um, digging into the numbers, is the size standards. So up until the 6th, there was no kind of restriction on size standards and you didn't really have to share the size standards either. Um, yeah. So it, it's only through really digging through documents and looking at kind of architect's drawings that, that we've 
been able to dig out the other ones, you know, when you've seen developers go as small as 10 square metres. Yeah. That said, I did have a look at some of the bigger ones ahead of this, trying to um, to, to get an idea. And the second largest application that we've seen over the last three months, and it was all was last month, was um, was Black Horse Tower in Enfield um, coming from Chase Green Developments. And that's 219 homes. And there's been various iterations of this. And, and it would seem, as is maybe an assumption, but it would seem that as the expectations of what you are, and you or not even expectations, what you are allowed to do keeps changing. Developers yeah. have to keep resubmitting plans. So this one has been in the works for, for a long time. Um, so 219 homes. And at the moment, the current application looks like they're not dipping below that 30, 37 square meter minimum size standard for a one bedroom flat. So that's encouraging, but I still want to look at all of the other ones as well. Um, so basically, like from one of the, the major applications uh, yeah. submitted kind of before the size standards came in, they, exactly. they have, they've met them anyway, uh, with a view yeah. to kind of you know proceeding proceeding on. But I guess yeah, the 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 assumption I suppose from an, an increased, I, I guess there's there's two possibilities really is that people are getting in applications quickly before this uh, the size mm-hmm. standards deadline hits and they don't need to to adhere to them or meet them because the plans are already in and then what have you yeah. or there's a bit of a delayed response to the build 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 thing last summer and you know the relaxation as you as you mentioned of uh, of the class o legislation uh, if you like uh, around uh, converting converting um, premises uh, into houses so I guess there might be a bit of both going on. There might be some people rushing through applications, not meeting size standards or not needing to. Yeah. But there's also on the other side, as as, as you mentioned, the, the example in Enfield uh, of people actually just responding to, to that which exactly. is needed. Yeah. yeah, I think I had tracked maybe like three or four for that Enfield one. Um, and that is particularly interesting because I think it's quite a well-known building. And actually it was owned by Hermes previously. They had a consent to redevelop with some flashy CGI's in 2017, that never went forward. So now what you're going to see is instead it will be a PD scheme within the with the exterior kind of the same. Yeah. So I mean, is that optimal? I don't know. It will be cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Be cheaper. One one interesting thing to sort of add in there as well, which um, I don't think I'd realised until talking to people in the market recently. Um, PD, there's an expiry on how long you can you can have that PD prior approval. And so what you're seeing at the moment, a lot of PD schemes that have struggled, maybe they couldn't get development finance, maybe they couldn't sell. Uh, and, and this is stuff we've, we've widely covered it um, in the EG. Those, those prior approvals are going to expire. And now you've got building owners who they need to quickly get their prior approvals back in again. Um, yeah. So I think that that's kind of a factor in there as well. Back in uh, autumn, when we, your article were uh, reported on um, the inferred, I, I suppose, slump uh, based on the mm-hmm. data in terms of uh, applications, there was a uh, a bit of a notion uh, mentioned in there that people are going to maybe hang on, I suppose, to their to their commercial assets, just pending some government support, I suppose, for yeah. uh, for those assets. So are we assuming then with the applications that have come forward that that's that's no longer the case and people are kind of going in for these uh, new applications uh, in in order to as you as you said kind of future proof themselves yeah i don't think there's going to be a cliff edge of now all commercial premises that were struggling is going to just kind of chuck it in and say we'll, we'll just turn everything into resi yeah. i think it's more of a gradual um and and everyone that i spoke to around the autumn had said we would anticipate that there'll be an uplift certainly by this time next year what is super interesting though is because as the um as the government expands pd with this 
as I mentioned before, allowing class E, anything that's class E to be converted into resi. Everyone had expected that, you know, this is this is huge. This is, you know, basically any commercial, any vacant commercial premises and vacant being uh, vacant for three months, which right now, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> as So everyone had thought this is going to be huge. However, the government then added a condition, and this is what keeps happening, by the way, these conditions that really shape the numbers. The condition was um, that the the maximum amount of uh, floor space would be 1,500 square metres, which is really not big. That's like 16,000 square Yeah, 16,000 square foot. And that will come into force. April, April, between April 21st and August, um, there's kind of, it's sort of staggered, part of it will come into force then and then the full, the full Class E conversions will be in August. So that could actually, you sort of expanded it, it'll be interesting to see what happens, because with that restriction on size, will we just see PD actually drop off? You'd imagine so, that that doesn't seem particularly large to me. Um, Mm. And as you said, like, you know, vacant for, for, for three months, I mean, like you said, there's going to be a fair amount of, of space that does qualify for that. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 whether they can navigate or successfully navigate all of these different um, clauses being being added on to exactly. to to the requirements for for going in for PD. Like you said, my timeline at the start was a very very slim down one. Um, mm. It wasn't you know there's details and branches hanging off it, but it seems to me like uh, there's a little bit of I guess, whimsy, uh, for want of a better word, about how the government's going about this. Uh, it, it seems like there's problems just being yeah. uh, pointed out to them and they go, oh, OK, well, we'll close that. We'll just we'll put in a, a maximum size. We'll put in this clause, that clause, the other clause. I mean, from your perspective, how how is the development community responding to what they see as presumably a lot of um, or increasing amount of red tape uh, from government on the issue? Yeah, there's red tape, but I guess it's also sort of like the, the the changing, like what you can and can't do with PD. I mean, typically nobody's really wanted to be, they all moan about planning, of course, um, and maybe that's a bit flippant to say moan. I mean, but planning, particularly around London, is a barrier for development yeah. um, um, and the timelines mean that a lot of development isn't viable. So PD is an opportunity there. Nobody really wants to be seen as a massive advocate of PD because because the you know what we've seen come out as so widely reported is often not great but some of it is good yeah I think what you've sort of seen over the last six months because it keeps changing it's probably quite difficult for any developer to um who who hasn't done PD to sort of navigate this because you still need to have you know that you sort of think oh you open this up for this you don't do it with planning and it's you know a, a lower barrier to entry it's, it allows SMEs does it really though because actually looking at the numbers the um, the developers that are submitting plans or submitting pr- a request for prior approval these tend to be and I'm looking at that it, it's either companies that I have never heard of um, but it's more the um, specialist PD developers, so yeah. they already know how how this works, um, and it's not a huge pool pool of developers, to be honest. So I so think that's done, that's yeah. interesting. So it's effectively done the opposite. It's made it potentially even more of a closed shop <laughs> to people well, that's who already. Yeah, yeah, that's what everyone's saying with the size standards um, and with the the limit on the amount of space that you can now convert. Which yeah. you would imagine, well, maybe that will tailor it for SMEs, but it, they just keep changing it. So we just have to keep looking at the numbers and seeing, you know, that shows what how, how they're really responding, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, when we mentioned on this podcast before, the requirement to keep places evolving 
change of use and and all these kind of things are, are vital you know we know we need more homes we know that mm-hmm. uh, we know there's a surplus of, of certain different types uh, of space um so there there is something to be said for uh, making the process easier in terms of converting x to y but there's there's obviously difficulties with with doing that there's a long process yeah. to go through in terms of actually you know doing it it's all very well me doing my my sim city stuff of saying oh that's uh, there's too much retail there just just change it into homes it's fine um but i know like the the institute of british uh, architects have, have been particularly uh, critical i think of of this of those kind of plans to open up uh, the door for more use types to be to be converted um via pd oh, yeah. um yeah so it, it's it, it's obviously a, a difficult thing for the government to 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 legislate on um but at the same time it, it feels like they do they do kind of have to i think but i think with the class c conversions that one sort of um had really shocked people and that was where you saw um some of the big planning trade groups um actually kind of the industry groups we had um RTPI, uh, Reba and Ricks writing to the PM to, to reverse it, saying this yeah. has gone too far. Last week, I spoke to Ian Fletcher from the BPF and the BPF's big worry is that it's all about location, right? So so they just really want to protect kind of the high street, the hubs, the centre of towns. You know, is it appropriate to be having housing there and what what's the effect of that um, and what's the long term effect as well? A lot of the time people say it really comes down to location by adding in that extra restriction in terms of the the 1500 square metre. It sort of seems like that's to placate anyone who who has concerns, but, but that sort of cuts off what was also maybe already working with some of the yeah. the larger offices that weren't right on the high street so yeah, exactly it's saying well no it's not a, a huge swathe of, of conversion we are capping it we're limiting it but yeah. people actually undertaking the conversions are saying well don't do that like we, we need actually like a good volume of space now moving swiftly uh from uh, pd conversions possibly of restaurant and leisure space. We're going to talk about those restaurants, those leisure operators. Obviously, it's a section of the economy that has been really brutally sideswiped uh, by the events of the last uh, 12 months, uh, the food and catering industry. But we are all tentatively allowed back out a little bit. Uh, Sam, you've been uh, looking into that uh, this week. Yeah, so I think a really great insight from Emma showing how one way that you can use sort of data journalism to tell tell us tell a story and deliver really great and um, helpful information to to our readers. Me, on the other hand, I've gone uh, probably gone a little bit lighter, but I think you can also use research and data to tell just a just a little bit of an uh, you know kind of story. So um, we we had a little look towards the end of last week into how much uh, outdoor space has been applied for given that come 12th of April we're all allowed back out and to to meet our our friends and maybe sit down and have a have a glass of of something and and eat together outside of course so we just had a little look over how many applications there had been for either um sort of pavement chairs and tables or about <laughs> outside um dining and there's been a lot actually you know we're we're all um desperate to get back out and of course those leisure companies that you talked about being sideswiped are desperate to get people people back not in but back on the on the pavement so our sort of insight showed that there had been a 38 and a half percent increase in the number of applications for outdoor seating on on um, 2019 and 44 percent up on on 2018 and and that um, sort of was the equivalent to about ten and a half acres of space, and this is um, across uh, London and the big um, six regional cities. And yeah. 
and that is pretty much the size of Wembley. Wembley, you can seat about 90,000 people, I believe. So there's a lot of lot of plates and yeah. watching what to do if we're if we're really um, providing that many many seats. But it's really it you know it, it's this whole I guess it's you know it goes down that repurposing and pivoting route, doesn't it? That all of these businesses have have looked at different ways that they can provide a service to to us to the desperate um people that just really want to get back out there and start and start living again yeah that's that's interesting i suppose it, it's ambitious i suppose in this country as well to be apply for be applying for uh for outdoor seating and outdoor space yeah you're, you're so at the mercy of the elements often you know we, we had obviously snow this week at the the start of april which is fairly typical uh, the first week you're allowed to go outside uh, over to the pub and all the news items have people sat in uh, in hats and and woolly gloves uh, trying to down the first pint that they've been able to have in uh, in four months oh my god but so no- british <laughs> i was just gonna say we are british so whatever whatever Love the that weather. Yeah. What we didn't look into was the number of applications for out- outside heating, which perhaps um, <laughs> perhaps we should have done as well. But hopefully, um, given the whole ESG agenda, not many people are applying for those, and we'll just put on an extra extra jumper and a woolly hat. Yeah, that should work. Or well, at least uh, some awning fitters might uh, might do quite well uh, over the next uh, twelve months or so. Um, but it, it, it's interesting as well because you can imagine a lot of those um, providers or a lot of those leisure operators they'll they'll need a certain type of, of real estate into uh, like outside their establishment in order to, to provide that. You think in a lot of those the big six um, city centres in London, a lot of these businesses will be stymied in terms of providing outdoor space just by the fact that they're, they're on a road. None of these places are, are super heavily pedestrianised or that there, there might be plans uh, kind of longer term to enable more businesses to actually operate with an outdoor element um purely so that they're you know perhaps a bit more ro- more robust um in the future they can uh, again vary their offer um to customers but again that does fit into the esg um, agenda i suppose if we are preventing our cities from being so reliant on on road transport perhaps there's something in that as well um, that we need to look at longer term I think there's a, there's a huge piece, isn't there, to be done around what our towns and, and cities look like physically go, going forward. Because, you know, th- it's great that all of these applications have been permitted for outside dining. But I did I saw a, a thread on Twitter this this week about a, a wheelchair user who, who came into into London and said, it's great to see so many people in all this outdoor dining. But have a th- have a think about as as wheelies, as, yeah. as she she mentioned, because I can't get around, you know, it was already difficult enough and now there's all these tables and chairs everywhere which everyone wants to support the economy of course but we do have to think about how we actually use the the streetscape and and thinking about every person and everyone's access so I think yeah going forwards it's going to have to be bigger pavements isn't it and really thinking about usability uh, because yeah. you know, I hate to be a pessimist, but I doubt this is the last time we're ever going to experience something, something like this. No, uh, hopefully by then, we are able to to steel ourselves a little bit better against it, uh, and we can future proof or start future proofing now, uh, in order to enable our, our cities to to better recover if that does happen in future. So a huge amount of challenges uh, for planners to navigate, uh, not only cityscapes uh, of the future, uh, but also how uh, we go about repurposing our existing real estate. I want to thank Sam and Emma for joining me. They both want to say goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, Graham. Bye-bye. And uh, thank you for listening.